Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Restaurant Innovator, a podcast from the editors of FSR Magazine that features conversations with trailblazing chefs, restaurateurs, tech innovators, and other folks in the food service world who are leading the charge in creating elevated experiences for modern guests and employees alike. I'm your host and FSR editor, Callie Evergreen, joined by my colleague and co-host, Sam Danley, associate editor. I'm excited to introduce you to our special guest on today's episode, Becca McIntyre, Vice President of Culinary and Supply Chain at Craveworthy Brands, the platform company behind Wing It On, The Bud Long, Beatty's Mongolian Grill, Flat Top Grill, Genghis Grill, and more. Becca, thank you so much for joining us. Can you start off by introducing yourself and briefly walking us through your background and journey to joining Mongolian Concepts? Absolutely. Thank you for having me today. I started with food like a lot of my colleagues as a very young child cooking with my grandmother and the bug got me. I knew that somehow in some way I wanted to be involved in restaurants. So I worked my way through. It was culinary school, working in restaurants, and then little by little really became enamored with the supply chain side. So from there, I came over to what was Genghis Grill and started working in training, then in culinary and supply chain. Genghis Grill became Mongolian Concepts for several years, and then we were acquired by Craveworthy Brands. So in a very short nutshell, that's been my progression from operations in the back of the house, running restaurants into this role, which has been incredibly beneficial for the job right now to try to understand what works for operations, what works for sourcing, writing recipes, you name it. And when we're talking about Craveworthy with all of the different brands that you mentioned, being able to overuse word, but pivot into the different styles of food and the different styles of operation has been incredibly beneficial for me. You, uh, you know, you mentioned Craveworthy Brands has a, a wide range of dining concepts. How do you balance like culinary authenticity and innovation when you have so many diverse brands under the umbrella? Well, I work with a colleague, Robert Kapikoff, who's been phenomenal to where we trade off projects. So depending on the brand, the location, if they're very heavy, say in the Chicago market, what we which we are, he's very ingrained in that community. So he really understands it. If it's more Southern, I might take lead, but we're trying to look at not necessarily what's cutting edge, but what's trendy. We want to make sure it balances against what our guest base is looking for. And wearing it dual hats, sometimes that's a positive and sometimes it's a little bit of a negative. I love the idea, but then the dreaded sourcing pops up and I have to figure out how to make it work. So we do a lot of white paper. What do we think is a great innovation for these brands? And sometimes it'll start as a project for one brand and we find that it really fits for a different brand or maybe in a different level. Maybe one is a little bit more adventuresome on the flavor profiles. So it might not be right for one brand, but it's a great fit for another. So while we have so many different brands, it lets us have a freedom to play and nothing's off the table. Even things that we've used before and some of them are more Asian inspired concepts might be a great fit for a wing flavor or something along those lines. So once we got through a little bit of the enormity of running so many different styles of companies, it's been really fun, honestly. It's probably the most exciting time in my career for what we've been able to do and acquiring a concept can take a lot of time to really understand their guest base. So sometimes when we're coming in, it's 
very quick fixes or things that we need to address, but a lot of it's a good year of trying to understand who they are, who their core guest is. Is that something we can build on, expand on? Are we needing to attract a new customer base as well? And not trying to really mess anything up until we really have our arms around what that is. So there's a lot of work on the back end once we acquire a brand of building for the next year and what that needs to be. Hmm. And speaking of acquisitions, you know, it was just recently announced that Craveworthy is going to acquire a cookie chain dirty dough. I'm curious, you know, what are kind of the the next steps for you getting involved, you know, coming in? What is what is your role look like? It's twofold. They do have a baker that we're working with now with what should the cookie flavors and toppings be for the rest of the year. So we're once again going through that process of what is our guest, what toppings really resonate with them, what would be great sellers, what's our bench to start with. So that's immediately taking place. On the other hand, on the supply chain side, it's looking through all of their items. Do I have contracts already in place that can cover them and get them a better buying power based on our larger portfolio. Sometimes it's creating new relationships. So it's going through trying to see how we can benefit the stores, very heavily franchised organization, make sure that they're more profitable from that buying power that we have and trying to streamline also when possible. So it's a dual path of the innovation and streamlining as well as the supply chain and trying to streamline that as well. Hmm. And what would you say some of the strengths and then some of the challenges would be, you know, being involved with such a a larger portfolio restaurant group that's planning on growing even more? Well, challenges is usually remembering which brand we're working on and what the projects are (laughs) and what's the most important. Uh, It's easy to have a long list of goals and what we need to accomplish, but there's always a limited or finite amount of resources to accomplish them. So what are the most important? What are the timelines and staying organized? If I didn't live by spreadsheets and a calendar, this would never work. And I have we have a very, very nimble team to where when we need to tackle a new project, something pops up, we're able to do that very rapidly. On the other hand, the downfall of that is if something pops up and you jump from one project to the next, what's falling to the wayside? So trying to make sure that we keep the priorities in line. And then also when you're looking with a lot of smaller brands that we acquire them, the amount of time and resources we allocate to each chain within our group. So tell us like a little bit about what some of your priorities are. Like what are some of the big focus areas for you in 2023? Any big accomplishments or, you know, projects you're particularly proud of? We completely rolled out a new menu for Budlong, which was a huge point of pride for us. We really t- took them from Nashville fried chicken and expanded their menu to a Southern fried chicken. And we did a fried cornbread appetizer. We did a lot of really fun things. It's um, Southern with a little bit of sass. So that's been a really fun project to work through to once again, like I mentioned, say who's our core demographic and how do we build on that and expand on that? Maybe you don't like spicy food, but you love fried food. What can we pull from there? So that one just personally has been a really enjoyable project. We did the same on a slightly smaller level for Wing It On. So with some of these brands, that first big 
new menu rollout and really being able to see how our guest responds is incredibly rewarding on the culinary side. When you're talking the other hat, the supply chain side, as we've acquired brands, switching broadliners, just being able to have that um, run smoothly or as smoothly as that ever happens is also a sense of accomplishment to where we can once again move into a one system. Systems for this size of group Crayworthy are incredibly important. If you don't have that organization, nothing ever works, you're falling through the cracks. And like I mentioned before, we're heavily franchised. So trying to make sure that we're fulfilling our obligations and that we are the best franchise first organization we can be. From my side, that's not working directly with them, but making sure they have the food, they have great products that our guests love and that we do it in a way that they're able to execute. So it's really top to bottom by the time we hand it off to our operators and say, here it is, run with it, your guests are going to love it. Hmm. And just in case our listeners aren't as familiar with Craveworthy, can you just briefly um, run through each concept and kind of describe what each menu looks like? Oh, absolutely. Genghis Grill is one of our older concepts, our legacy brand. It's build your own stir fry. All your protein seasonings, veggies, sauces are on a line. You can build whatever style of food. You're vegetarian. If you are a protein loader, whatever you want, you can create off of that line into a bowl, selecting your base. Um, we've had a lot of fun with the create your own. That's still always going to be core for us. So on that side, it's always adding new ingredients or different flavor profiles to keep the interest while still letting people create their own flavor profile. Over the last year and a half, we did introduce our chef bowl lineup, which if you don't want to build your own, if those flavors intimidate you, there are bowls that are preset for you that we'll make. You don't have to go up to the line and build it yourself. So we wanted to remove that veto vote of the guests who just weren't comfortable for whatever reason doing that. But we really lean into, it's all about the flavor profiles you want, build it in the way you want, the amounts you want. So the individual individuality that people crave, absolutely filled for Genghis Grill. BDs and flat top are very similar to Genghis, but slightly unique. BDs is a little bit more experiential. Our guests stand up at the grill after building their bowl, same lineups, same being able to pick and choose slightly different flavor profiles and products, but it's a more celebratory brand. Bigger parties, uh, just a different vibe versus Genghis is a little bit faster. Then flat top has a little bit more adventuresome menu items and it's a lot heavier on scratch products, scratch made sauces for our guests, a little bit outside of what people think of as the traditional Chinese Asian food. We have a lot of Indian influences as well. And for that one, the proteins we control at our grill area, everything else is is available for our guests to build their own, but that allows us to have some premium proteins, um, salmon on the line, steak, et cetera, because we can control that a little bit more. We do have to be a viable business model. So when guests can control how much they put in a bowl, we do have to be very aware of those products. So those are our legacy brands, the create your own stir fry concepts. Crafted Burger Bar, we founded almost a year and a half ago in Chicago, it's two locations, heavy beer tap, as well as, of course, it's a burger bar. So burgers, sandwiches, but some unique flavor profiles that we've built with that. So traditional, more bar environment, which is the first for us. 
other brands, some of them have alcohol, but it's not alcohol forward. Then we have Bud Long, which I mentioned before was traditionally that Nashville hot chicken. And we expanded to have barbecue, garlic Parmesan sauce. We've added some sides. We added a chicken fried steak sandwich to offer something if you just don't want to eat chicken today. So really pulling it outside of that traditional just hot. People love hot products. I love hot food, but at the same time, not everyone does. And you don't want to have that veto vote of, I don't like hot or I can't eat hot, so I don't want to come. And we've done hand pies, which was a really new ground for us to play with. So just having a lot of fun and trying to, like I said, keep a little bit of that sassy attitude in the brand. Um, wing it on, primarily wings, fresh wings, huge selection of sauces. We win um, best medium sauce every year at wing festivals. So we have a lot of pride around that, but it's, it's more limited in, it is still strictly chicken. And I don't mean limited in a negative way. It lets us concentrate on something and do it incredibly well. So wings, bites, tenders, sauce, fries, we have a line of loaded fries that we rolled out that, so that kind of dirtier in a fantastic way where if you got to play and put anything you wanted together in a bowl, what would you do with fries? So that's been one of the items we rolled out last year and that we had a lot of fun taste testing. Those were really fun cuttings. And then Lucky Cat Pokey Company, uh, we launched in Chicago. It's it's a pokey company, but then we also use that as a virtual brand through all the corporate Genghis BDs and flat tops to where we opened 50 in a month. So just offering a different, um, use for our stores and that is all third party and then dirty dough of course a cookie company so uh, that one i haven't played in baking before so when we've talked about challenges and i am absolutely a home baker but that's a totally different world so we do have a phenomenal team on that side who handles the science part but using the cookie as a carrier and what flavors every single week trading out to different items creates a lot of fun and what can you do with cross utilizing those ingredients to create completely different flavor profiles for our stores and our guests. And I think that's all of them. We have a couple more coming, but those aren't open yet. Fantastic. Thank you for that. I'd love to know a little bit more about just what your menu innovation process looks like when you're going in. I know it obviously will vary by brand, but when you're going in to create, you know, a new LTO, you know, what do those steps look like? Oh, that's so very, very brand. I can't talk. I'm sorry. Brand specific. There we go. For Genghis Grill, we went through a year of every eight weeks, we rolled a new LTO. And that was primarily to gauge what our guests were interested in. Now we're coming back to a more quarterly evolution. We try to be a good three to four quarters out. And that's really a team effort. It's between myself and Robert looking at what's trending, what's really going to appeal to our demographic now that we have a really firm understanding of what that is. It's between marketing with what promotions do they want to run? What are they after? And then of course our leadership team and what they're trying to do with the brand. So we'll have those discussions together of what's the goal, not even specifically what's the flavor profiles or the product, but what's the goal that we're trying to get to. And then we work backwards from that of what's the flavor profile, what's the item, is it appetizer, dessert, bowl, wine ingredient, and how does that fit into an LTO window? Um, then from there, it's the ideations, it's the cutting, it's the sourcing, it's making sure that I don't sell in a product to our executive team that I'm not able to get for them. And then 
we go and we start testing some items, we heavily test and other items we roll out as an LTO. And sometimes we use LTOs as a menu test if it's going to stay or not. We The Genghis Q4 LTO is now going onto our permanent menu because they were so successful. And then sometimes it's a matter of we're going to keep those in our back pocket and roll them out annually. So we use LTOs and menu innovations in a lot of different ways, depending on the outcome that we establish in the beginning of what we're trying to get to. And I know that sounds a little bit evasive and a little bit in a roundabout, but at the same time, it is so brand specific of what we're trying to to reach. Like I mentioned before, is it trying to speak to our current guest? Is it trying to attract a new guest? And those are very different LTOs. And sometimes it's a matter of trying to give something to our current guests to keep them engaged and very um, loyal to us, but at the same time, attract new guests. And how do you do that without alienating your base? So it's a little bit of a balancing act between the two uh, right now as we acquire these brands and build them. You uh, you mentioned Lucky Cat is uh, a virtual brand mm-hmm. that is, you know, made in, you know, a kitchen for a different restaurant and then delivered to consumers. Give us some color on like optimizing the menu across channels. What are some, you know, different factors, different decisions you had to make when you're crafting a menu for like a virtual brand versus a brick and mortar? Great question. A lot of it has to do with distribution when we get to that level. Like a lot of companies, we have a very large footprint and we don't have a lot of density in some areas. So if it's not a common stocked item, if it's not something that's set up in a redistributor to where I can get the product, a lot of the times we're limited with that. So we'll start with the innovation. We started with Lucky Cat as the brick and mortar store and that was the menu that we designed, we loved. That's what we were moving forward with. And then when we decided to roll that out as a virtual kitchen, there were some tweaks. There were some items that we weren't able to source consistently. And the last thing we wanted to do was roll it out system-wide. So we did make the decision to modify that menu slightly for the virtual brands. It still has to stay true to who it is. We don't want it to be different from Lucky Cat in Chicago. But we did find that saying that we have a brand and setting up a brand in one of our brick and mortar stores that we can't execute was detrimental to the brand as well as to the team. So it was really an analyzing the SKU list, looking for subs based on usually two to three deep on what still kept the same flavor profiles that were acceptable. Then does that impact nutritional statements? Does that have allergen impacts? And trying to make sure that we were covered within all of those as well. So it it was a really big project to make sure that we covered all of those, um, keeping true to who the brand was, the product integrity, the flavor profiles, while still being able to execute. And is is it only available like in other Crave-worthy restaurant kitchens, or is this something that like an outside operator could? It is only ours right now. And Eventually, we'll be adding more, and part of that branding will be as Crayworthy Kitchens, not something we're trying to hide. We are perfectly fine with everybody knowing where it's coming from and that 
transparency, the visibility to our guests. But as we do that, we might actually offer some of those items on our in-house menus as well. We're still playing with that to where our guests could order in-house as well as on third party. We haven't quite gotten there yet. We have a great VP of digital who's working through that as well, Warwick. Um, but that's really exciting, a project that we've been working on for a while as well to see how do we offer this to our guests to where they can either order online or come into our restaurant and experience almost more of a food hall approach than the one brick and mortar store. So more to come on that. I don't even know exactly how we're going to work it all out, but it's a really fun project. And with a portfolio of those brands, it will be able to fit them what meets the guests in each location best, as well as the brand, the equipment to keep that limited as well. Hmm. You know, I'm wondering if you could give us a few examples of how, you know, different brand demographics and target audiences impact what your, you know, menu innovation process looks like. Oh, absolutely. I'll use BD's Mongolian Grill as an example. We rolled out a fantastic menu about two years ago. Absolutely loved it. We took the flavor profiles a little bit more actually in the flat top grill range of what our guests were expecting. So we were able to pivot from that, pull a lot of those sauces into one of our other brands, and then go back to more of that experiential. Our guests at flat, at Genghis, I'm sorry, or BDs, it's BDs, really wanted to be able to watch and enjoy and be part of that experience instead of having such a heavy chef bowl mix where we were bringing it out to their table. So really understanding who that guest is then had us go back to what would be fun for them on the line, what would be part of that experiential, that excitement when they come in for a celebration instead of being all the plated menu items. So really understanding what that guest wants let us move back to what we needed to do with menu ideation. So understanding who you're trying to create for has really over the last two years become incredibly crucial in our ideation. If we're creating for the wrong brand, the food can be fantastic, but it won't be successful because it's not what our guests want. So when we on my wall, I have a chart of who each of these brands are whether it's Sassy Southern, whether it's an adventuresome eater for flat top, whether it's Genghis Grill, that's about create your own. I want it my way and I want to be able to handle it myself. It really helps drive how we're going to create the food to fit that really core desire from our guests. And then as far as, you know, how you kind of balance that need for, you know, authentic, high quality ingredients with the supply chain side and, you know, cost effectiveness. How do you, how do you do that? Very, very strenuous RFP process. <laughs> when we get, usually it's towards the end of the year, like most people, but it's a good six months of pulling samples, reviewing samples, looking at the distribution footprint. Can we get what I want to get? What do we have any foreseeable obstacles coming up? I'm chicken was such a huge issue a couple of years ago. That's our biggest protein. And also trying to have dual suppliers for anything that's a key product. And once again, that goes back to having two or three deep of acceptable subs, if need be, just to make sure that we're covered. And I think that's something we all learned through COVID. It, things happen. 
And if a truck doesn't show up, what are we going to do? Now, the legacy brands are a little bit easier to manage with that because it is a food line. You build your own primarily. So if we're out of something, if a vendor shorted, we have a little bit more um, freedom with that. But for these other brands, you don't. If you're a chicken wing concept and you don't have wings, there's a problem. So trying to make sure that we have that set up ahead of time to where our vendor, or I'm sorry, our broadline distributors have those items to where they're automatically subbing them to where we're taking care of, if possible, having contract pricing set up for them as well. So trying to be as proactive as possible. And as we've added more brands, that's become even more key. There's less time to be as hands-on. So the more we have those systems in place to where our partners know what to do and who to contact and what's an appropriate product, it's been incredibly helpful. And, you know, I'm curious, what are some, you know, culinary trends you're seeing out there right now that are, you know, getting you excited and you're thinking about potentially, you know, adding to a brand menu? Not to give away all of it. Um, I've been playing a whole lot with boba. Um, just that's been such a big trend. It fits so many of my brands, but we've been doing playing with it in fun ways. Some other people have too as well, but with cocktails and just different drinks that we can do that make it very approachable. A lot of our brands, we we try to stay in a very approachable area with our food. So something fun, engaging um, ways for that. Our sauces are always key. So we're always watching what sauce trends are. We're not trying to be cutting edge in most of our brands, but once they get more towards the acceptance stage or using it as a topical instead of as a key item to help introduce those flavor profiles, Wing sauces have been a tremendous amount of fun as we've worked through that for Wing It On and the trends and just playing with uh, gochujang has been around forever, but what can we do with that? Sriracha, when we went through the huge sriracha sriracha issues, um, what is a good replacement for those flavors? Um, Speaking with somebody yesterday about their lemongrass green sriracha, which is not traditional, but just what's fun and what makes it approachable because our guests know that name but that we can cross utilize in different ways. Uh, that's also been very important for us, the cross utilization of ingredients in our stores to, to have the highest volume possible. So that's more of where we've been playing and trying to stay, keep our toes in the innovation world without pushing our guests too far until they're ready to be there. What about when it comes to like, you know, ensuring that chefs and the kitchen staff across all these different brands are trained to meet your culinary standards. Can you maybe give us some color on how you approach that, some of the decisions or thought processes there? We've tried different approaches over the last few years. We've done videos. We have very specifically written recipes and pictures, but videos have actually been the best. We use a training platform. We have a really strong training team. So I'll go in with the training manager. Sometimes Robert will go in. We use different people throughout the company to actually cook the products on camera, show them all the prep ahead of time. This is the finished product. Being able to see is incredibly helpful. Everyone can interpret different words in different manners, but being able to see that final product and tasting it. So the only way that we've ever been successful is getting the team involved, having them taste it, understand what it needs to be, and then having that confidence to recreate. 
rollouts tend to be better. It's the training of the new hires and subsequent team members. So it's been that second level of training that we've really been working on developing. Um, once again, the online training platforms, but nothing beats the hands-on training. And I think as we've gotten into digital and so many different areas, it's easy to forget that and say, here's a video, watch that, you'll know. But that side-by-side -side of you know, now it's the time to flip this or drop this or, you know, and food's not a hundred percent the same anytime, no matter how tight your specs are. So there's all those visual cues and, um, the smells and just being able to understand how to handle the food. And that takes time and that takes side-by-side -side training. And sometimes we get too busy or distracted by everything else going on to understand we're restaurants, that food is our key product and being able to execute that at an excellent level, no matter if it's dine-in or third party is key. And to spend that time and investment with those individuals. And we tend to hire a lot of first-time employees. So being able to take them and train them, not take for granted that, oh, you should know this. It's basic. How do you hold a knife? How do you hold a spatula on our grills? And taking that step-by-step -step and understanding if we don't lay the groundwork, first of all, you're not going to keep the team member. They, they'll feel overwhelmed and everyone wants to be good at their job. But also we're not going to deliver the product that our guests are trusting us to deliver to them. And when you're so third party heavy, it really adds a different level. It's not only plating an item and it walking 15 feet to a table, it's packaging a product to where it can travel in somebody's car to somebody's front door and still be the quality that we want to represent our company. And how would you describe kind of your leadership style? I love to be side by side with everyone that I work with. I do like to have goals. I like them to be clearly communicated to myself as well as to my team from me to where we are all working together to accomplish that goal, whether it's on different projects or the same projects, because there's always so much going on, but check-ins, making sure we're always available to to communicate. Some of our best ideas and our best rollouts have come from late night calls of, I thought of this, let's tackle it. And it turned into complete restaurant concepts. So just being really communicative and very clear on expectations. You know, looking back, not just at your time at Crave Worthy Brands, but just your culinary career overall, are there any like big learning moments or challenges that stand out to you that have kind of shaped your approach to leadership or really kind of informed how you approach your current role? Yes, I think probably the biggest formative moment was actually learning that not everything's black and white and that people have other things going on in their life. And sometimes understanding and being engaged at a human level is more important than somebody punching in five minutes late. And that you will build an incredibly strong team and you're a better person if you can do that. And even though that's not directly food related, it's been an overarching important message in my career that people come first and if you have a strong team, your business will follow. Hmm. Absolutely. And then, you know, you mentioned this a little bit collaborating with, you know, marketing, but how else does it look, you know, departmental 
collaboration, you know, between culinary and ops and like, how do you kind of collaborate between all the different departments? We're a really tight team, which comes from being a small team to where we're all working on the same projects in a different form at the same time. So once we have that goal of this is what we're working on, we'll go through tastings. Once we have the finalized menu that's been approved by the executive team, that's when marketing, training, and ops will work with me um, to where we know what's rolling on and off menu so we can start depletions, what products are coming in, what training needs to look like to where we can hit those times. And if we miss one of those steps, something's not going to roll correctly and we don't want that. So it's very, very hands-on between those departments with ops really being the last one that's engaged physically with the actual training in the stores, but having their sign off and their buy-in, which is incredibly important. We don't ever want to surprise them by something we're rolling out. Um, taking ops by surprise when they don't know what's coming is a very difficult idea to sell into them. We need our VPs of ops, regional directors, et cetera, to be able to explain the products and why we're doing what we're doing, which that's also changed over the years. You used to be able to say, here you go, this is the rollout, run with it. But now why are we doing what we're doing? How it's going to impact our teams as well as how it's going to impact the restaurants has been really important. So being able to provide all of that in one package to our teams has alleviated a lot of stress and a lot of questions, which in turn has made our rollouts smoother. We're not answering a lot of one-off questions. All the information you need is in one area to reference. And it's also let us hold our teams accountable to the execution to where our guests get the best results. Hmm. You know, I'm curious, kind of shifting over to some fun, more personal questions. What is one of the most, you know, unusual, but surprisingly delicious uh, food pairings you've discovered while experimenting with menu items and ingredients? Ooh, that's a great question. Yeah. I like that one. Yeah. I'm thinking about that for a second. I, I don't even know if it's really unusual, but one of my favorite ones has been our Korean quesadilla where we took kimchi into a quesadilla and then we took chili crisp uh, and mixed it with ranch as the dipping sauce. So it, it it was just one of those, we wanted to play with these ingredients. We wanted a way that was once again, very approachable, handhelds were really hot last year, um, continuing this year. So letting us take an ingredient that for our guests might've been a little bit intimidating and giving it in such an incredibly accessible manner that it's become one of our best sellers. So. I don't necessarily think the pairings were incredibly unusual, but it was surprising on our menu. So yeah, that's been one of my more enjoyable, this is cool. Um, and then Bud Long, we did a, we called it the picnic sandwich where we were really putting everything on it. We put potato salad on the sandwich with fried chicken and bacon and everything else. So once again, not unusual pairings. It was just a fun, you're playing in a kitchen how would I eat this product individually? But now let's do it all as one. So we've had a lot of fun more that way than really the cutting edge. We tend to, like I said, to stay more the acceptable, um, not acceptable, the less cutting edge flavor profiles. So playing with those in different unique ways has been a lot of fun. 
Do you have uh, like a, a number one favorite menu item across any of the Craveworthy brand concepts? Like if, if you could only eat one dish from your menus for the rest of your life, what would it be? I'll save the hard questions for the end. Oh, let's see. I'm very mood driven when it comes to food. So depending on how I feel, that answer changes a little bit. And also what I've been eating a lot of. Um, I got to go back to flat top grill and it's not a specific menu item, but it's the Vindaloo sauce. I love heat. We grind our own seasonings to make that. It is spicy and absolutely delicious. So I'd eat that on anything we have, but that's probably my favorite menu item, even though it's not really a plated menu item that we have. I love it. Let's see, were there any memorable like kitchen disasters that, you know, turned into like a learning experience or a surprising success? Well, we all have the stories from when we started in kitchens and disasters. <laughs> I probably give you a lot of those, you know, then don't close the fryer, all of those fun times. And you learn really fast when your chef makes you mop or clean up a whole fryer that's spilled all over the floors. But things that have moved to a success, something we haven't rolled out, um, but playing with a reverse um, quesadilla where we put the cheese on the outside and crusted it came from a mistake of playing with cheese on a flat top grill and oops, flipping the quesadilla completely over instead of folding it. So that one's fun and maybe coming. We'll see about that. I, I think we all have them. Nothing's really coming to mind at the moment. A lot of it's just been getting in kitchens and playing and mixing. And we do have the benefit of these long lines of food in a lot of our brands where you can sit there and look and mix and match to, to come up with completely random flavor profiles. I mean, we did a hamburger bowl at Genghis, which is definitely not Asian, where we took a panko and sesame breadcrumb. We made our a Thousand Island dressing and we've had some really unique combinations. We did a crab boil bowl where we did a beurre blanc and all of these are on eight foot flat top grills with a grilled lemon. So not crazy disasters, but a lot of our items come from just playing with our food that we have and what really blends well together, even if it's something we, we wanted to have thought of to begin with. Hmm. And, uh, I guess kind of wrapping up here uh, a little bit, what's What's next for you? Are there any new culinary directions or concepts or areas of focus for uh, you and your team in 2024? Well, I have a boss who likes to acquire brands, so this answer might change tomorrow. Uh, we do have a pizza, more um, New York style concept that's coming in the next couple months and a breakfast con coming breakfast concept coming in the next couple months as well. So those are new areas for us to to really work in and play with. So that's really where I'll be spending a lot of our time uh, rolling out those menus and then adjusting them as needed at once we see what our new guests really respond to. So that's where we'll be concentrating as well. Of course, Dirty Dough, a lot more to come with Dirty Dough and what we need to do with those menus and uh, really digging in on that side. Hmm. It does seem like he's trying to collect all of the concepts. Like, you know, you got, you know, burgers, you have wings, and, cards. Okay, and pizza, and 
like breakfast and now you have dessert and I'm like looking for what's missing. It's like, are you going to be doing Mexican next or what? We have looked at it. So we'll, we'll see. We are going to be rolling out some boozy milkshakes coming up pretty soon and some brands to test, which once again, fun tastings. Um, so you can't complain <laughs> about those. So we're still dabbling even within our, the current restaurant concepts and then additionally what we're going to add. But with such a broad portfolio, I will say that this is one of the, this is the first time in my career in one place I've been able to really work with so many different flavors and just, it's been incredible on the personal side, I worked on the Mongolian concept sides for so long that I played with the Asian flavors and Asian-ish flavors. So being able to really work with all of these other items has been just a, just a blast. So Fantastic. Well, if there are, you know, any guests out there, any uh, listeners who are curious, want to learn more about Craveworthy, about you, can you kind of direct them to a website or a good place to contact you? Oh, contact me directly, McIntyre at craveworthybrands.com. Happy to talk. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Becca, for your time today and being on our podcast. Really appreciate it. And to all our listeners out there, thank you and stay tuned for more. <laughs>